2: their essential love
1: of justice. Hi, Hi. And welcome to Kud Zooba uh, for july twenty eighth, twenty nineteen. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always. Welcome Catherine Smith.
2: Greetings from Atlanta.
1: And welcome Tim Shiflett.
2: Good evening,
0: sir.
1: All right, big show tonight. Here in about twenty minutes. We're gonna have on um online author and also does other things within the state of Virginia. He'll probably tell us about that. Mr. David Jonas, to talk about his uh, project, Spitball, that the first three chapters have been released on politicalwire.com, and we'll go all through that book and other things. Uh, But until then, there's been a ton of uh, national political news, and one thing kind of changed to the next seemingly But the big event that's been anticipated for, you know, really weeks now um, was Robert Mueller's testimony on Wednesday. Um, He he went before the House of Representatives, and um, many, many representatives from both sides of the aisle asked him questions, but their questions were quite different in nature. Um, Tim, a lot of things may not have been within Robert Mueller's purview think summarizing um, the testimony would be within yours, because I believe you watched it from beginning to end every moment.
0: Yes, I um, was fortunate enough that I did get to watch all of it. And um, the, there were two sessions, of course, uh, the House Judiciary Committee in the morning and the uh, intelligence committee in the afternoon. And, and they were quite different appearances for the director in the morning. He, he had a lot of trouble. He, he seemed to be halting in his speech at times. I don't think he was hearing the questions, either that, or they would rapid fire these questions and say, uh, "I, I got five minutes. Let me keep talking when he would try to answer. And, and and after a while it gave the impression that he had not read his own report which was understandable cause they were quoting in verse in scripture uh from a 448 page report and you know, he was sitting there frantically trying to turn uh and he really came out not looking very good to be honest with you uh even though you know everything you said was the truth they didn't they didn't debate him on facts it it was other things they they went to his his credibility as a witness and this and that and the other uh and republicans were understandably understandably gleeful after it was over including trump uh but in the afternoon um it, it, it was a little bit different, though. It, it went much smoother. They were talking more about Russia, um, and, and you know, you know, it, it went better. But I, I don't. If people were expecting to move the needle, guys, it, it didn't move the needle at all, really. And uh, polling after it was over proved that. So. I said, we're just we're just right back where we were and
2: there we are.
1: Yes. Catherine, your thoughts on it.
2: Well, you know, I um I think I only I only heard a little bit of it. Um I read some reviews, I heard a little bit of it on the radio and I guess it was exactly what I expected it to be. <laughs> I wasn't surprised or disappointed. I just I I I figured that he was going to give very short, very um succinct answers. I I agree he was a little stumbled a little in the morning. I don't know if he was tired or unexpe- or or just I don't want to say unprepared, just he seemed a little anxious almost. Um but I didn't expect it to be uh, to, there to be any grand uh, reveal or anything. I didn't expect him to, you know, be uh, particularly uh, dramatic. Um, I think it was exactly what I expected. I know a lot of people were expecting more from him, uh, especially uh, people, uh, Democrats and more progressive people were expecting, I think, him to be more forthcoming about uh, impeachment and. But I really wasn't expecting that. And I think he was very, uh, I think it was obvious that he did not want to be there and would have preferred to let his uh, report speak, you know, stand on its own without his comments.
1: Yeah, Catherine, I think you and I kind of go in with much the same anticipation. If he wanted to say more, he would have put it in the original report or when they. Uh, you know, unloaded a box of Sharpies on the thing, uh, redacted everything, he would have spoken up. And then also he was so adamant about what the scope would be and wanted to be such a very tight scope. There were all these indications he didn't really want to reveal much more than he had. And so I I, kind of thought compared to the Comey hearing, you kind of expected more out of Comey hearing, you got more out of it. You expected less out of this one. You got less out of this one. no. Um, So that's kind of what I see. Tim, you you disagree?
0: Yeah, well, optics. Optics is the word I was searching for. People expected to see, at least see, the Bob Mueller that they saw 10 years ago with these things. He hadn't done one of these in six years, and it showed. He used to be um, more, should I say, sharp, at least in appearance. Uh, when he was engaging, you know, uh, committee members, he used to be a uh, little, seemed a little more focused in those days. He was more willing to mix it up a little bit in those days. Uh, he just didn't seem to, dare I say, be the same person And it's like the Kennedy-Nixon debates in 1960. That's what I'm going for. People that heard those debates on the radio thought that Nixon had either won or at least tied. And people who saw him on television thought that Kennedy had clearly won, and it was all about optics. And that's what that was all about the other day. And Republicans sensed. That Mueller was that way, and it emboldened them to just begin virulently uh, uh, attacking him. Uh, uh, Gomer was almost screaming at him, and they were using words like "un-American," and and Mueller just sat there and looked at him, essentially when they when they said those things. So, it it did not go off as well as it could have gone. Uh, in the optics department, and and people pay attention to things like that. Like I said, they did not contest him on the facts in that report. They went after him personally.
1: Yeah, and I tell you, as listless as he looked during the thing, to me, and the way the Republicans attacked him, even though, you know, he was appointed first by a Republican administration you kind of are shocked by that but to me the most galling thing was after the testimony that afternoon ken Starr um remarked that he couldn't believe how robert Mueller had overreached and hit the scope of his investigation and you're sitting there going wait weren't you charged with investigating a land deal and you got to sex um How in the world can you say that anybody overreached um, what, you know, was their purview, to use Robert Mueller's terms? But, see, he's, you know, a very loyalist Republican, and does this kind of show where the Republican Party's at? One thing happens two decades ago, and they look at it one way, and then later something else happens, and the rules have completely changed, Catherine.
2: Oh, Absolutely. And as far as getting personal with, with um, their comments, I think that's the, the new Republican way. I mean, look at what else happened this week with uh, our president. I mean, he's just all about going personal. And I think the rest of the party is following suit and just, you know, going personal all the time. That happens all the time now.
1: Yeah, roles of the games have changed. Well, you know, I, I don't know. I guess we need to have that wrap-up question, Tim. Where do you think the Democrats go from here? I mean, is there anything left of the Mueller report um, in a broad, expansive way? Um, I mean, obviously, you can talk about it at a party fundraiser or a party event, but as far as a you know a real um, thing where you can change minds of people in the middle or on the right. Is there any more life to the Mueller uh, investigation?
0: Well, according to the polling, no. uh, Politico uh, and Morning Consult did a poll as soon as it was over. And we are right where we were. uh, About a third of the voters say impeachment proceedings should begin 46 percent say no 16 percent unsighted that's within a point of two of, of four it was uh and and when and then you look at nancy pelosi's problem guys uh by 64 to 18 percent democrats support moving ahead with impeachment and republicans six percent of them support it and 86 percent are against it um they, uh, uh, another another problem you got here too it, it is that independents really are, are not on board with 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 doing it either. A majority of them are not. So really, I don't I don't see where Democrats have to go because about two thirds of them is the only group now that support um, moving ahead with impeachment proceedings. Um, so you, you, it, it, it's all split up. About 35 percent say Mueller exonerated Trump. Forty percent say no, he didn't. And 20, 20, uh, 20, uh, about a quarter of the voters don't have a clue either way. Um, they're, they're split on whether the Trump campaign worked with the Russians. Forty-three percent say yes. Thirty-nine percent say no. Um So I I uh, I, I, I uh, just—40 percent of the people say that this investigation will not influence their vote at all next year. Twenty-nine percent say they are less likely to vote for Trump. Seventeen percent say they are more likely to vote for Trump. And Trump's approval is holding in the low 40s, and his disapproval is holding in the 50s. nothing's moving the needle didn't move at all that that was what the democrats needed to happen if anything the other day for the needle to move for the report to come to life in the minds of the voters and it just didn't happen
1: well tim since you framed this i'm asking of you then of Catherine. okay let's say we'll work with this set of facts um impeachment may be the right thing to do there may be justification for it no doubt but the American public is divided at best and you know it'll go nowhere in the Senate so you're torn you know your base wants it you really believe that it's uh, you know justified politically hard to figure and in the end you're not going to get the resolution um, what do you do Tim do you, do you go for impeachment
0: Well, you know what I think they did? I think they missed their opportunity. I think they should have done it as soon as that report came out. They should not have let Barr come out there and frame the thing, and they have him hauled around and had all of these different committee investigations, and they should have had a select committee doing this all along. We are coming to a time shortly where we we there's a drop dead point and I would say probably it's in September whether they either gotta do it or don't. That that's what we're coming to. Now if I believe that we had the goods, then yeah, I would go I would go forward with it. Uh but I believe at least to Convince the American people we need a little bit more than than we've got. Maybe we could somehow stumble up on his taxes or, or something. But I just got to say that 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 Trump has won in the court of public opinion on this thing pretty much. you got what he wanted out of it.
1: You're getting ahead of us on the taxes, um, Catherine. Your thoughts? I mean, what what do you do?
2: I think. Um I think you wait until some of the other things are resolved. Some of these other um, uh, court cases that are out there and let that unfold. But I think Tim's right. I think we have the window closes. I think in September, it's just too, it'll just be too late uh, with the election coming and everything else. But um, if they, depending on the results of these other matters that are sort of floating out there, I think you go ahead with it. If there's enough, um, evidence. And I think that's the plan right now from, I, I, Nadler and Schiff have been on the morning shows and they're both saying, well, we have other information that we're waiting for and we're, we'll proceed as we, as we see, we're able to or something like that. So, uh, but yeah if they if they've got enough evidence or enough it's not evidence so much as, you know, I guess it's evidence. Um then yeah, I think they should go ahead with it. I think I don't think it I don't think people are going to go, "Oh, I was going to vote for the Democrat, but now that they've impeached, I'm going to vote for Trump again." I just don't see how you lose voters. But I'm naive about that. I well, I, I guess the, end of, the uh, argument might be
1: you could be focusing on other things. Um, instead of impeachment, you yeah, could be that's focusing true. on some issue that, you know, getting more people access to health care, improving education, uh, cleaning up the environment. That would be, I guess, the argument there. Um, well, let me talk. Tim, you alluded to it about the taxes. And I think I said something to you all a few months ago in a uh, text. At this point, would you rather have all of the information uh, unredacted from the Mueller report, or get a look at his tax returns? And I said at that time, how do they look at his tax returns? We know there's a case in New York, and we know that there are, and we know there's a bill in um, California where Donald Trump would have to, or any, it's just really this is any candidate wanting to um, earn the state's electoral votes would have to turn over. Their tax returns for a five or ten year period, whatever it is, a, a the, the typical time period that you know presidential candidates in the past um, have turned over their tax returns, or you couldn't be on the ballot to then earn the state's electoral votes. Um, tricky thing is here, Donald Trump probably not going to get the votes of California or New York, uh, so that may figure into the calculus calculus here, but. Um, Tim, how important do you think
0: this bill is? Well, it's uh, ex- extreme, you know, extremely important. I mean, we need to see those taxes, of course. I don't think we're going to. I- I'll just tell you that right now. He has managed to avoid us for four years, right? Four years now, um, throwing those things out there. No, no, no matter what I think anything they pass, he's going to ignore it. I think anything they do, he's going to ignore it. He's already ignored uh you know them asking him to come talk, asking people in his administration to come talk now he has another thing in his pocket. he has been appointing judges like mad all over the country. He's got the court system in his pocket, huh. Where do we go? Where do we go? If we pass something that that he's going to ignore and it's not going to be brought up in the Senate if it, is, well, and if we seek relief in the courts, he—I think he's very well proved that he's pretty much now got the Supreme Court in his pocket. Where do we go?
1: Yeah, and I, I, we're going to discuss that here in just a little while um after we talk to our guests for this evening really excited to have on the program for the first time david jonas welcome david
3: thank you so much pleasure pleasure to be on the line
1: oh glad to have you well you're on uh, not only with me david who booked you but also Catherine and tim and we're going to change things up a little bit we're
2: going to start off the interview with katherine katherine hi david thanks for being on with us tonight we We appreciate it. And I think we've all had a chance to look at at least some of the recent, uh, books that work that you've been doing. Would you like to just sort of tell us a little bit about, well, a little bit about yourself and the work that you, that you do on an ordinary day. And then also, um, about this new book that you're releasing in chapters electronically and why you chose to do it that way.
3: Sure. Sure. So, uh, you know, I got my start in politics on the Obama campaign back in 2008, uh, worked in the U.S. Senate for a couple of years for Al Franken, um, went off to school, studied public policy, and then kind of wound up. Uh, I was born and raised in Virginia and kind of ended up back in Virginia politics. Uh, right now I'm with a group called Clean Virginia. Um, they're policy and research director, and basically we're going after um, for-profit utilities here in Virginia. Um, I'm well aware that Georgia has its own problems on the that front as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's just a great uh, I've been very lucky that I've been uh, had my foot in the you know, campaign world and the policy world, um, kind of, at, you know, every level. And so that's been very helpful. Uh, also, someone who just really enjoys writing about politics and uh, think th- thinks there's a lot of bad analysis out there. So that's kind of uh, that's kind of where I came from with a lot of uh, with a lot of the project that's going on right now.
2: And what what made you decide to do your this new project uh, online electronically instead of the sort of uh, common uh, way of just sort of publishing a book? What what was the yeah? I, I Thanks for that. I think a
3: lot of it. I think a lot of it was so. My co-author on this is Tegan Goddard, who uh, who runs PoliticalWire dot com, and he's run that website for about twenty years, and uh, you know I just think he is. Um, probably the, the most dependable, um, you know, political mind, uh, you know, and kind of uh, American uh, online uh, analysis. I just think he's, I just think he's um, just uh, the, the pinnacle of his field. And um, I had started writing for him, um, just kind of one-off columns. And I kind of always said to him, you know, you should really write another book. He had written a book in 1998. You should write another book. You should write another book. Um, you know, there's, there's a real hunger for it. And he said, Oh, you know, I'm just so busy with this website. And so I just kept pressuring him. um, And then eventually he said, okay, um, you know, we can try and do um, the book deal route. um, But if not, let's just, let's just serialize it and publish it ourselves. So, um, you know, I think, I think part of it came out of um, just wanting to uh, just use his kind of platform that he has on political. I think he has something like a million visitors every day um and trying to and he has kind of a members only section just trying to um kind of reward those readers and also kind of give a new way to interact with the book and i don't know it just sounded kind of new and exciting and also a way to um chop it up writing a book can be kind of daunting so it's kind of nice to say all right we'll do a chapter a month and um um, see how it all turns out at the very end also it's just how quickly political news is is going Um, it's kind of nice to be able to uh, work on this stuff on the fly
2: Yeah, that's that's a a real benefit of it, I thought. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to Tim for the first round of real questions.
0: (laughs) Good evening, Mr. Jonas. Thank you for being with us this evening.
3: Um,
2: Absolutely.
0: you, You said that politics is all over the place. Is the Internet the cheap culprit?
3: I think, um, you know, Tegan, who's my co-author on this, um, that's certainly his, his theory is certainly that technology is the real heart of um, what's going on in our politics. I think the reason our kind of – you know, writing a book with somebody isn't always easy, but I think what we kind of have is he kind of has this – you know, he's just had this website for 20 years, and he's just been able to view in real time how politics has evolved and how much the internet has been – internet and twitter and um you know the blogosphere and everything like that and um i think that's certainly his thesis i think and i think the the ultimate question is there a president donald trump but for twitter but for this kind of internet and technology i'm certainly of the mind um and i think Tegan is as well that 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 presidency doesn't exist without a lot of this kind of these modern um technological and internet kind of communication tools and uh, the ways you can play around with them obviously
0: Mm-hmm. do you think that he has pretty much bypassed traditional groups like the media and used Twitter to just go directly to his base then
3: yeah i think i think there's certainly that element to it i think um you know i don't think there's any um there's any doubt that twitter was really the fuel you know was the really rise of uh really helped fuel his rise i chronicle in the book how his very first tweet. He had a very kind of benign Twitter account before 2011, and then on one day in June 6, 2011, it starts getting you know all caps, crazy terse talk. Um, you know, kind of the modern Donald Trump. You know, it was probably written by assistant before then. What happened on that day, June 6, 2011? Barack Obama had his first Twitter presidential town hall. So, you know, in the book we kind of talk a little bit about how. Um, you know Twitter has just it 's now a place of political business it 's just a place where um the conversation and where thought leaders are groomed and where power can be shifted back and forth and it's you know um i don't think he kind of recognized it himself as he was doing it, but you know he's he's very media savvy, and I think he saw this was a way to cut out a lot of the middlemen quite frankly
0: so so you talked in the book also about rules of the game in politics, and we've all played those, especially those guys like me, political hacks, who've worked in campaigns and worked in, in local and and state and federal politics. Uh, for, for years, uh, there's a certain set of rules that we played by and a certain set of things that we expected to happen, as a result of employing Those rules that's how we play the game But if you play By those rules now How do you defeat A person like Donald Trump who obviously Plays by no Such rules
3: Well, yeah, I you know there's There's certainly you know right If, if Barack Obama was on the Ticket a third time um, He probably wins that race pretty handily uh, there, There's nothing quite like generational talent, or, you know, if you're a Ronald Reagan or if you're a Barack Obama and you have this ability to connect with people in the rhetoric. Um, but those skills are pretty rare, especially on the presidential level. And so, yeah, you have to kind of ditch the old rules. You have to kind of, um, you know, and I think this is kind of where we're going to get to in the later parts of the book. Um, but, you know, now that we know that these are the new rules of politics, you know, you, you have to kind of dog whistle at every turn. Um, you have to, you um, you know, you have to kind of play in this weird uh, media scape. You have to, um, you know, the the chapter we just released about, uh, you know, how the economic voter, the pocketbook voter is pretty much dead, right? You you just have to kind of recognize these new rules. I don't think there's any holy grail. And I think still traditional rules have their value. Um, I just think you have to know where the shortcomings are and just how how different people kind of communicate and consume political information—it's just so radically different. Even though when I got started in 2008, um, you know, on the Obama campaign, even even since just a decade ago, it's just—it's incredible how how much it's changed.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you one more uh, general question, and then I'm going to send it over to David uh, for some questions. As a result of everything we've seen before and during the presidency of Donald Trump, has he been normalized?
3: Yeah, I I think in a broad sense, yes, I think, and and, um, I go into this in one of the chapters, it's, um, gosh, I'm going to butcher the scientific term for it, but it's the normalization of deviance effect, right? Mm -hmm. It's the idea that Things that are perceived by society as being deviant or you know out of the norm, if you expose somebody to it long enough, it becomes normalized. Um, And you know, I think that what's scary about the long term, you know, the you know, my my concern long term is much less about Donald Trump and much more about Trumpism, right? That this ideology could go on for another decade, twenty or thirty years, because it just um, you know there will. There's just a market for it now. You know the, the kind of the big lie in politics is that you need a majority. You need a majority to do things, and it's never been that way. You just need a very, very passionate minority that will knock down every wall that it runs into, and I think that's what, uh, that's what Trumpism has right now. It just has that, that key percentage of uh, primary voters, of uh, political activists who largely run things, um, and not in some conspiratorial sense, but just have – they vote in every primary, and they let their they, – they they talk to their representatives quite often, and they work in special interest groups. And so, yeah, it's um, – um, these are not things to be taken lightly in the long run.
0: Mm. Uh, thank you for that, sir, and I'm going to send it over to David. David?
1: Yes. Well, David, um, I wanted to ask you about – one question about each chapter. First one, uh, chapter one, about you know, you use the analogy of the spitball and baseball, a uh, very clever and way to get folks in. Um, and it talked about kind of following the rules and, and changing the rules. And we had uh, several months ago an author of another book, Stephen Levitsky, who's co author of How Democracies Die. And it talked about how, you know, democracies die when kind of people stop playing by the rules. And so we know that at different times in American history, uh, people have you know cut corners and not played by the rules, but it seems like it's getting worse in the past few uh, decade or so. Is there an event that y'all could pinpoint that the you know decline of playing by the rules really started in this
3: current era? Oh man, it's 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 difficult to trace uh, where exactly. I mean, I think the rise of the Tea Party, um, you know, really kind of showed off. Um, you know, for, first they kind of broke the rules in terms of who has the power in in any given party, right? They kind of the Tea Party kind of showed um, that really it's the primary voters, um, you know, the grassroots that carry a lot of the power. Um, and some people could actually, you know, construe that as that was kind of a positive story, right? If you if you if you think the big bad boogeyman is establishment power, um, you know, it was it was uh, kind of a, a nice story from that, that side of things. But I think the – as soon as that kind of got weaponized by the Mitch McConnells, by the John Boehners, by the Paul Ryans, who kind of harnessed that energy and said, by any means necessary, the ends justify the means, I think there was just this overwhelming – you know, I, I think that there was this sense on their side that something cataclysmic had happened with the, when Obama got elected, um, you know, that this this kind of longstanding, you know, largely white, largely conservative, largely Christian, but not not exclusively, you know, this kind of power structure that's as old as America itself, that it was really dwindling and that was really at risk. And I think when people get into that survival mode, then the rules don't matter anymore, right? It's not about, um, it 's not about winning majorities it 's not about respecting your opponents it 's not about finding common ground it's you 're illegitimate and you need to go and you know that was trump's trump played that perfectly with the birtherism thing right i mean it was just um it was just a, you know it, it just it was a very not only one incident but just kind of this cascade of people just saying um, you know the ends justify the means here
1: yes. And um, your, your next chapter, uh, dog whistles, and we're, that term's been around quite a while, and you, you had some great examples. You mentioned uh, Lee Atwater and how he would talk about how you could do some, you know, racially coded things, and certain voters would pick up on it. Um, also, some of the old uh, Nixon campaign and, um, and um, George Wallace, I guess, kind of around that same time in 68. Um, but then – in the last few weeks, we've had Donald Trump use Twitter where he's called out cities like Baltimore. Actually, several months ago, probably more than a year ago, he did gave Atlanta much the same treatment as he did Baltimore with John Lewis. Also, he picked out um, particularly Representative Oman, didn't call out her district Minnesota, said, why don't you go back to where you came from? Um, Now, of course, you might say, oh, he meant the district, but he really could have meant another country.
2: These are really (laughs) dog
1: whistles. These are dog bullhorns. Um, Correct. How did it go to where this is is all acceptable for even a a good swath of the Republican Party?
3: Well, it's it's complicated, so I I, I feel very nice that a lot of these chapters I write – uh, I don't mean them to be predictive, but it's been interesting to see them then happen, you know, a couple months later. I mean, there's an entire section about doghorns, just that. And the question is, is well, why do doghorns work, right? The whole point of the dog whistle was, you know, you just say this thing and only a couple people get it, but everybody else lets it slide. Doghorns are not subtle. Everybody hears it. And so the question is, why does that work? And, um, you know, Tegan, uh, if you were on the line, my co-author of Sitball, Ball, he would say something to the fact of, well, it's, you know, it's because we've all gotten a little bit too confident about what everybody else hears, right? When you and I read that tweet, um, or we read a report on that tweet, um, you know, we kind of we kind of get it. But there are so many different channels, literally hundreds of channels, now that these these messages, these tweets, these posts bounce down. And so, if you're consuming a different um, information source, um, you know, it's not a um, it's not a racially uh, coded, uh, you know, uh, you know, basically him trying to revive birtherism and trying to kind of invoke, um, you know, um, racial anxiety and, and racial hysteria, um, you know, to them, it comes out as, wow, he's defending the, the American order or something to that effect. Um, and I think, I think uh, what Tegan sees and what Kanad see is just the fact that we recognize that tweet as that is, uh, for what it is, but that you could literally find a hundred news sources that portray it in different ways, right? That that you know that uh, give him the benefit of the doubt, or literally completely twist his words around, or deceptively edit a video with a congresswoman from Minnesota and start circulating that. You know, it's just a um, the dog horns just work very well in today's in today's um, media age. It's just a world where. Loud things get attention, and you can rely on a lot of middlemen to chop it up in the right ways and package it to the, to the end users in the right way.
1: Yes, and kind of a related question about it, but it's not exactly about the book, is he's attacked cities lately. Um, and of course the Republican Party, that fits real well with, but then he's a creature of New York, the biggest of all American cities. Um, So that's kind of strange for him to do it. But secondly, if you're kind of familiar with anything to do with city trends, um, I'll just use John Lewis' example since I'm much more familiar, you know, being born in metro Atlanta and raised than I am in Baltimore, which I've been to like half a day there. Um, You know, in 1986, when John Lewis took office, um, the uh, Atlanta child murders were fairly recent. And you were probably at the, the nadir of white flight, and, and the city, the overall poverty rate may have been lower in 1986. It definitely was than now. And then now, all cities—it's not just southern cities or a few select cities. Almost every city in the country is having a resurgence. More people are wanting to move to the city. People that are millennials, generation, you know, why. Um, the, the younger, you know, people that are just coming to the work age are wanting to live in cities, not suburbs, many cases not rural areas. So most people kind of, I think, know this. Do you think Donald Trump is, one, a strange messenger to attack the city, being a creature of it? And two, do you think a lot of people are going to catch on to say, you know, cities are way better than they used to be as far as the things that Donald Trump was attacking, like – um Crime, poverty, and um, cleanliness.
3: Yeah, that—that well that, I mean, the urban versus rural uh, divide, and especially the the um, you know the invoking of the city uh, as being the bad the bad thing. I and mean, that goes way back to the you know to the founding even, and so um, that that's a long and old story. Um, is Donald Trump a very curious messenger of that? Sure, but you know I you know I think back to you know I think back to the you know the kind of the Godfather of of kind of uh, political, linguistic uh, communication uh, framing, and that's George Lakoff. And George Lakoff says it doesn't matter who you are. If you assert the frame before your opponent does, um, you're going to win that argument, right? So he, as president, gets to assert the frame. He, he kind of has first strike capability. And so if he wants to frame um, you know, thriving cities, resurgent cities, I don't think he really cares – Um, you know, as um, these places of crime and of of things, you know, it's then incumbent on, you know, somebody like Elijah Cummings, who's a great congressman from that area, to then have to refute that. And in refuting that, it doesn't matter if you have all the truth in the world. You have expended so much political energy. Meanwhile, he's off to the next thing. And so, um, you know, again, I don't think of of Donald Trump as being this kind of master communicator, but he understands these this. His power that he gets is which is that he can assert the frame, and then the rest of the world has to freak out and reassert their frame on it so um it's it's uh it's not a fun game to watch in real time. I'll tell you that much
0: yes, he definitely
1: is controlling the political attention span of a lot of the folks. well, final chapter, final question for me, and that's your third chapter about the the death of the pocketbook voter um and i don't want to talk so much about the pocketbook voter part of it is. You mentioned Kentucky, and Kentucky is a very intriguing state in that um, it had probably one of the more popular um, locally run uh, state health care system, or you know, got involved in health care under Democratic Governor Steve Beshear. Yet at the same time, it really moved towards the right at the national level, towards Republicans, and now you have a situation where – I think some Kentucky voters are not happy with what they're getting in the governor. They're not happy with what they're getting in Mitch McConnell. They remember Steve Bashir and how popular it was, but they just don't like those old Democrats. And so they don't feel like they have any choices, and that's of their own doing. Um how does all this kind of fit into the, you know, the death of the pocketbook voter? Is this cultural um inclination one way or the other? more important than you know what's good for your family
3: yeah i i think it quite frankly goes beyond kind of culture or economic issues i mean i think the reason mitch mcconnell um, you know it's kind of mitch mcconnell at least i assert in this chapter of spitball you know it's, it's mitch mcconnell's world and we're all kind of living in it um and i think what mitch mcconnell kind of understood about voters not just in kentucky but kind of throughout the country is that Um, What they care deeply about more than their health insurance, more than they care about coal, uh, more than they care about, you know, fine Kentucky bourbon uh, of which I'm a very large, big fan. Um, What do they care about more than these things? They care about power. And um, you know, there are, you, you may not like Mitch McConnell. uh, You may not like um, the current governor, Matt Bevin, uh, but if he keeps you away from the bad people, the truly bad people or the bad things um, well, that's that's just uh, sorry. I, I have to make the 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 worse the better of two bad choices. Uh, I think that's a false choice, quite frankly. But I totally get it. I totally get that. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell at every turn has kind of given Kentuckians a vote. Um, you know, you can either um, stick with me, and I'll gain all the power, um, and I'll use it in the way that I see fit. You know, I'll I'll stack the courts. I'll protect the people on our side. Um, Uh, You know, maybe maybe I'll pass some tax cuts and get around to that sort of thing. We'll see. Um, um, And I just need a vote from you every once in a while and I'll keep the bad people at bay. I mean, I think that's the basic thing that he hit upon. And that's given that's that's why he's kind of taken over the political world. It's kind of, you know, even more than Donald Trump, we live in Mitch McConnell's world. Um, The world that Mitch McConnell wanted uh, is the one that has really won out. Um, You know, there's a chance in 2020 to send him packing for once and for all. Um, and I'm optimistic, uh, but it's going to be up to the voters. They have a real, real decision on their hands up in Kentucky. Yes.
1: Well, I want to thank you for coming on, but before I let you go, I want to pass it on to Catherine and Tim if they have any further questions. Um, Catherine? Well, um, I'm sorry. I, I bet she have got
2: – <laughs> uh, go ahead. Um, no, I don't have any more questions. Thank, thanks so much for being on, though. Thank you,
3: yeah.
0: Tim.
2: Yes, Tim. Anything uh, further? Yes, yes, I do have
0: a couple of more <laughs> questions. We, we've been talking a lot about Mitch McConnell and how how it seems like he's settled on the acquisition of power as as his, shall I say, bedrock. Other than that, does Mitch McConnell believe in a bedrock ideology?
3: No, I don't think so. You know, there's a very – I tell an anecdote in this book about how, um, you know, his first – on his first Senate race, he hired a young man by the name of Roger Ailes who would later Mm -hmm. go on to co-found Fox News, and Roger said, um, you know, I want you to carry around this briefcase. It will make you look more astute. It will make you look – you know, Mitch was on the younger side back then, um, and the briefcase was empty. Uh, And it just kind of goes to – and I just love that anecdote so much because it kind of speaks to – I, you know, I, I, it's funny that Mitch McConnell gets uh, portrayed as this bad person, and I, I, I'm not a, a big fan of his, and I, I tend to cast aspersions his way. But he has shown that not having an ideology is to your benefit, right? John Boehner had an ideology. Paul Ryan had an ideology. Hillary Clinton had an ideology. Barack Obama had an ideology. They're all gone, and he's still there. And I think he has shown that giving voters what they truly want, which is something very base, something very much at the gut of political power. I want my tribe to win um, and I don't want my tribe to get hurt. Um, you know, the kind of the, the John Stewart analysis of, uh, of politics uh, towards the end of his Daily Show career, um, that, that was kind of his take. Um, you know, I just think, you know, does he have an ideology or not? Um, I would certainly say no, but I would certainly say that even if he if he does or he doesn't, he has shown that not having one is extremely beneficial to a politician's career, mm-hmm. and that's it's sad, it's very sad. I like, I like when my political representatives uh, stand up for stuff, whether you know it be good or bad. I like to know where they stand on things. Um, uh, Mitch McConnell took a very different route. Mm-hmm. And I read
0: what you said in the book, and 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 heard what you made an allusion to earlier, and yet. I'm one of those old school folks that still believes that people vote their pocketbook first in presidential politics. I think it's the only reason that Donald Trump might get reelected. Am I right or, or am I wrong?
3: Uh, certainly, I I would argue the I mean I don't I don't claim uh, a monopoly on uh, I I'm not very good at political predictions so I try to as I, even as I lay out these chapters that I'm trying to you know when I argue that the pocketbook voter is dead I still leave some ground to suggest oh I could always be wrong so I, I'm not necessarily saying I'm right and you're wrong what I'm saying though is if pocketbook issues really did matter. Um, we would be seeing very different electoral results. First off, you would imagine in 2018, um, uh, you know, the Republicans would have done a lot better in the House. Economy um, uh, economy's doing well, probably best uh, in my adult lifetime, um, and they got shellacked. Um, you know, I, I think that you can really look at the cycles of government. You know, a president takes power, and then that midterm, they get that that president's party gets shellacked why is mm-hmm. the economy um, is that pocketbook issues or is it that being out of power really sucks. <laughs> and when you're out <laughs> of power, you and your friends start knocking doors and you start making phone calls and you start donating. Um, I think that is a, you know, ec- economic issues still obviously matter quite a bit, but I think when you put the gun to somebody's head, it's about power. And I think that's ultimately what compels somebody to go into the voting booth and vote the way that they do, at least on the margin, at least in the way that we see the cycles in American politics. I think that's, I think power power, power trumps economic issues. Yes.
0: All right. I thank you for that, sir. And I look forward to subsequent chapters in your book. And I'm going to throw it back to David. David?
1: Yes. Well, I'm um, just kind of final thing since Tim mentioned it. We know chapter three came out pretty recently. Do y'all have like a? Set timeline. You're going to release chapters, or we want to have them all out by X months and year. Uh, any kind of guidelines like that, you can tell us.
3: We we do we do a, we do a chapter a month. I usually have a couple written ahead of time. Uh, sometimes you have to fiercely rewrite them to include something that the president has done, just to, to accentuate a point. But basically, a chapter uh, a chapter a month. So the entire thing uh, the entire thing will be uh, done by uh, early uh, 2020, and you can kind of see it evolve in real time we take comments um if you're a political wire member you can make comments and we literally incorporate those comments into the book it's kind of the double entendre of spitball there we're just spitballing with these ideas so um yeah a chapter a month and um um, you know it's going to be i think it's going to be a very very compelling work by the end i hope i hope people agree that um you know whatever you think the new rules are it's a very valuable exercise to determine what's really changed in american politics Yes. yes.
1: Well, since you're gonna have more chapters coming up, we would love to have you back on once a, a few more chapters have been out. Uh, we'd probably even love you every month, but that's probably a little too much. So we may let say th- another three get in the can, if you will, and and we'll get you back on if you're
3: willing. Absolutely. My 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 mom's a, a proud Georgia Bulldog, so I have to do it just for the Georgia connection. I'm, <laughs> I'm there whenever you need me.
1: Yes. Well, one final thing, just for our listeners, if people want to uh, get your thoughts on more of a daily basis, are there any social media or other places you publish?
3: Uh, I'm on, I'm on the Twitter uh, at uh, David T.S. Jonas. Um, I, I, I mostly just writing in the book, uh, quite frankly. Um, I used to have, I used to do columns, but um, I got, I got a kid and a wife and a full-time job. So just writing the book is uh is a, uh, with Tegan is, uh, is adventure enough for me, but um, yeah, yeah, I hope people I hope people will just uh, tune into Political Wire. Uh, I just think it's the best website on politics and uh, all the internet So If you need somewhere to go, go to Political Wire.
1: Oh yes, we're big fans, and a ton of our show prep comes from uh, Tegan's work.
3: Oh yeah, oh yeah. If you read that every day, you're like sixty percent of the way there to being like a, a, a good political pundit. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, David,
0: thanks for
1: coming on the show tonight. Thank you so Thanks much.
0: Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Yes. That was David Jonas, co author of Spitball.
1: And um, if you want to, you can't really buy the book. You go to Political Wire, and then you'd have to become a member to get every chapter. But it's just another added benefit um, in addition to the exclusive content. And they have uh, newsletters that you get if you're only a member and things like that. Well, guys, let's get back into our discussion, and Catherine, I think we were with you on the tax returns. Um, Do you think the tax returns are going to be more compelling and more damaging to Donald Trump than the Mueller report seemingly has been to this point?
2: Uh, I don't know if they'll be more damaging. I think they'll be more interesting, and so I guess probably more damaging because uh, I I, I don't think they're going to be – i don't think they're going to make donald trump look very good uh and i think people understand them more than they understand a whatever hundred of hundreds of page document i think people can sort of understand what a you know we all we all file taxes they might not be as complicated or as you know the same forms or whatever as uh someone like donald trump but we all understand what it means and so i think uh I think for that reason, yes, I think that it'll be more interesting, and probably more uh, could be more damaging. I suspect it'll yes. be more damaging.
1: Well, well, Tim. Uh, now another thing they mentioned about Gavin Newsom, he hasn't decided whether he's going to sign this bill or not. And we know Jerry Brown, very progressive governor, vetoed an earlier version of this bill. Um, why would this be so controversial? that a very safe, very democratic governor of California would have any fretting over this?
0: Well, you know, that's a question I'd like to ask myself. That article in Politico says that Newsom has tried to maintain some relationship with the Trump administration. What what relationship are we talking about here? Trump and the Republicans trash that state and all of its elected officials every chance they get. So what kind of relationship is he trying to maintain? I mean, California's had to go its own way on, like, the environment and trade and and all kind of stuff. Uh, on account of things that Trump has done and said. So on on these taxes, the Democrat in me says sign the bill. Although the pragmatist in me knows that signing that bill will probably not get Donald Trump's tax returns released. So what's the upside?
1: Well, I I will say this. Maybe it puts in a role— uh, it reasserts a norm, a norm that you know, Mitt Romney and John McCain followed, that George W. Bush followed, that you will release tax returns and let people know that you don't have a monetary interest in serving in government, something that George Washington uh, spoke out against you know, all the way back in the, you know, the very first administration or before the first administration when they were setting up the guidelines for our government. And so I think that would be the positive to it. Um, You know, Donald Trump may stall and sue and everything else Um, and and just disregard because we know that that him and his administration are not above just disregarding things. And that is a tricky thing. If this were a Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, maybe even like a Texas or a Georgia, uh, obviously, if it was Texas or or, or Georgia, you'd probably have to sign it. But if it was a swing state it would be something where he might have to actually release his returns to win that state. A uh, Republican state obviously will want those uh, um, electoral votes. But I think he knows he ain't going to win California anyway, so he could just refuse to win them uh, and refuse to compete for what that's worth. Well, um, guys, it seems like we've got about two more topics and t- time enough to maybe start to cover one. Um, since we kind of mentioned it, we can wait on the wall. Uh, And it's not like we haven't been there before. This tweet or series of tweets about Elijah Cummings, about the city of Baltimore, you know, like we were talking about with David Jonas, not a dog whistle, a dog foghorn. Um, Catherine, why in the world does he do this?
2: I think it um, satisfies his base, it makes them feel like he's uh, looking out for them because uh, you know, they know that because they're they're unhappy about uh, they don't like cities, they don't like urban uh communities and uh so I think it's uh a big loud foghorn to his to his uh base. Plus I think it's also the way he feels. I mean I think he mm-hmm. I I mean I think that's what he thinks. And he but, just but... sort of can't resist it. Well, Catherine, why
1: does he feel this way, being a creature of New York? You know, if this were some rural politician that was a true populist, that maybe had many of the same opinions and and everything else about him, I, I wouldn't like it. I wouldn't agree with it, but I'd understand where it's coming from. This guy is talking about rats in a city, and yet he was born and raised of the home of pizza rats. I mean, you know, New York has incredible things in it, but it also has rats, like pretty much every place. I mean, field mice, you know, they're in the rural areas, too. Um, and so why in the world is somebody that's a
2: product of a city
1: calling out a city for being a city?
2: Well, well, well I mean, I don't I, – I, I, thankfully, I am not inside uh, – our president's head and i don't know understand why he does what he does but i think it's definitely a call to his face
1: Catherine, why not there's probably a lot of empty space in there very spacious i've heard <laughs> um Tim, your thoughts on these tweets attacking do you th- let me ask you let me frame you a question here do you think this is more of an attack on elijah cummings or more of an attack on baltimore and cities in general
0: Well, let's be honest. Trump obviously does not like Elijah Cummings. Elijah Cummings has been one of his most vocal uh, critics on the Hill. And Donald Trump does not like anyone who criticizes him, especially someone with as large a bullhorn as Elijah Cummings would have. That being said, what set Trump off here? Apparently, he saw a segment on Fox News where they went in with cameras into the um, poorest parts of Elijah Cummings 7th District. You know, he has a, a good-sized district, both in the city and in the suburbs, and he actually has rural areas in his district as well, the 7th District of Maryland. Uh but they, they kind of cherry-picked areas and showed, you know, trash and rodents, garbage on the streets, a couple of buildings falling down. Trump took Wait, that to mean, aha, well, look what we've got here. And now I'm going to go after Elijah to come as it shows what Trump watches on TV. Mostly that, and especially those shows where they brag on him and that sort of thing. Uh, You want to know some trivia about Baltimore, guys?
1: Tell us something.
0: Well, Thomas D'Alesson, back in the 30s and 40s, was a congressman, later on the mayor of Baltimore. His son also later on was the mayor of Baltimore, and as it turns out, he is the father of none other than Nancy Pelosi, who was born in Baltimore herself. Now, I'm sure that mango moron in the White House didn't (laughs) know that when he started jumping after Cummings. But it has come out as a companion part of this story as this story has unfolded. David, another thing. You mentioned rats. Well, they actually did a study on rats about five years ago in New York City. There's five rats for every person in the five boroughs. So about 34 million rats. New York City is listed as the dirtiest big city. In the United States. And where is Trump from again? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it, that he gets away with doing this stuff? And
1: this isn't an attack on big cities. It's just when you put all that asphalt and everything else, you just have a lot more people. It's just going to happen. It's just the nature of things, and it's just – it's not good or bad. It just is. And, And there's so many good things about cities. Um, you know, that you get culture and social life uh, that people even outside of that city get to appreciate. Uh, Tim, you and I get to appreciate a lot of things about Atlanta, even though we don't live even in the metro Mm area, because we live close enough to it. Catherine gets to, Mm -hmm. you know, partake in it pretty much on a daily basis. But um, Mm -hmm. we benefit from cities even if we don't live there, and that's why it's just silly to, um, you know, diss a city. We know civilization occurred when they started forming cities between the Tigris and Euphrates. So if you don't like cities, you don't like civilizations, and I personally don't want to go back to hunting and gathering. Um, so a little short on that. Well, guys, uh, really enjoyed our guest, David Jonas, and until next week, that's been the Cudzy Vine. Good night, Good night. guys.
0: Good night, Ray.
2: We are the heirs of that
1: first revolution with a strong and united...